You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to talk to you about our sponsor this week, Tape a Call. Uh, a lot of journalists listen to this show. They should know about Tape a Call. Uh, if you find yourself on the phone going, uh, could you repeat that one more time? Because you are trying to scribble notes during a phone interview. You need to be present, focus yourself, and uh, get in sync with the other person, which means not scribbling those notes and instead using Tape a Call. It is the industry standard call recording app. It is used by journalists from the New York Times, Business Insider, ABC World News, and many more. And you can try it risk-free for seven days by going to tapeacall.com slash longform. Thank you, Tape a Call. Focus on what matters and let Tape a call, take care of the rest. Uh, also bringing you the show this week is a podcast that I am personally very excited in, uh, very excited about because I have uh, been obsessed with the topic for quite some time and I'm glad someone made a show about it. It's The Dream, a new podcast about the world of pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing uh, all over the country. People selling essential oils, beauty products, diet supplements out of their garage on social media at parties. Uh, the host, who is Jean Marie, used to be a producer for This American Life. And she grew up in rural Michigan, where almost everyone seemed impacted by MLMs, a.k.a. multi-level marketing schemes. Um, you can listen to The Dream in your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Uh, learn how these businesses work and how they go horribly wrong. Uh, thanks to The Dream for sponsoring Long Forum this week. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Hey guys. Uh Every few years, I make a pilgrimage to the offices of a New York magazine. Uh, this time, it was to talk to a guest who I've been excited about talking about for a long time. I don't think we've ever had an art critic on on this show, have we? I don't think so. Um, there's probably only three of them getting paid in America right now, so it's not that crazy. Um, I think we have the best known one um, coming on the show this week, and that's Jerry Saltz, um, who was the longtime critic for The Village Voice. Uh, R.I.P. and is now the critic at New York Magazine. Um, I did not know a lot about what he does, though I've been reading New York Magazine for many years, and uh, I think it's really fascinating, and this was like a really fun one to do. Aaron, I want to compliment you on uh, upping our critic game. I think we, we hear from people sometimes who say you should have more critics, and you have taken on that responsibility. I'm not sure I'm satisfying those people. I, th I think that they still want something that we're not giving them. So if you if you feel like we don't have enough critics on this show, email us, um, editors at longform.org, and tell us, not that we don't have enough critics on the show, but what critics you would like to hear on the show. I, I There's one person I can tell you who is satisfied today. Who's that? Adrian Chen. Adrian Chen has lobbied for Jerry Saltz being on this show with a passion I have not seen him bring to his professional life at all. <laughs> or his personal <laughs> life. Or his personal life. His, it's basically the only thing he cares about <laughs> was doing that. And actually, when I when I get, went to email Jerry to come on the show, 
the way that I found it was looking into my Gmail for Adrian Chen, Jerry sauce. <laughs> yeah, just... And there was like three different times he had sent me the, uh, thanks to Adrian Chen for making this, uh, making this happen. It wasn't that I didn't want to have Jerry salts on, uh, but, um, never has, uh, someone lobbied so passionately for, for a guest to come on the show. Here you go, Adrian. You know who, uh, would write a good email newsletter? Who's that? Adrian Chen. Does he, does he have one? I don't think so. I don't know. But he should, and if he did an email newsletter, he should do it with MailChimp. Um, I love MailChimp. You love MailChimp. We all love MailChimp. Thank you uh, for your support of the show, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Jerry Saltz. Welcome, Jerry Saltz. Thank you. We're here in the uh, lovely offices of New York Magazine, which has a sort of cryptic hieroglyphic of what appears to me JavaScript uh, instructions on the wall. Are you able to decipher those? I have no idea, but it tells you that New York Magazine has cracked the way to get to the future somehow. Um, we were actually just discussing uh, that you have listened to the show, and in fact, your own boss, Adam Moss, has been on the show. And it actually right. struck me that you've been doing this for long enough. When you get hired for a job like this, does an editor say, this is what we want out of you, or are you just on your own trajectory at this point? Right. When I was interviewed in 2007 by New York Magazine, I was then the senior art critic for The Village Voice which I loved. I had been that for 10 years, and I had been a long-distance truck driver, which we can talk about. Yeah. I, I have no education, no degrees, no nothing. And I got plucked, lucky, out of when I was 40-something years old. I hadn't started writing till I was 40. But that's backing up too far. Well, I'm, I'm up to back up that far. Well... What led you to become a truck driver? I wanted to be an artist. Yeah. I graduated about last in my big, big, big suburban Chicago high school, Oak Park River Forest, Illinois. It was the late 60s, you have to understand. I'm 67 now. And there was no art in my life whatsoever in my suburb, none. So it's not like I had any serious grounding. Certain things had happened that maybe we can talk about, sort of primal experiences. But um, I graduated high school with no idea of going to school. It never even occurred to me, really. I was a terrible student. Never did a thing. Never, 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 never. And then somehow I started going to the Art Institute of Chicago for about a year or two, but of course, repeated the dumb pattern. I never went to classes. I would go to protest marches. And eventually I started an artist-run art gallery in Chicago, 1973, called Name Gallery. It's because we couldn't think of a name. And our idea was to show other artists, and then we would get a show once every two years or so. And I loved doing that. I can't tell you how much I love doing it. I love sort of having a sense of control, of building an art world, of meeting artists, of curating shows and music platforms. At the time in Chicago, I saw any famous bluesman or jazz musician you can name, any, any, and tiny rooms with nobody there absolutely nobody and then we would pay them like 150 dollars also then to perform in this dumb gallery of ours what was what was dumb about the gallery well i didn't think it was dumb <laughs> but uh it wasn't dumb frankly yeah. i thought it was pretty fucking great yeah and fun and at the time i worked in galleries I had all sorts of jobs. I was a big fuck up the whole time. I've been fired a lot. And I was making art. And I started showing my work at name. And I had two shows there and they both were kind of successful. People bought my work. I got what's called the National Endowment for the Arts Grant a massive grant of $2,000 that I took and moved to New York City with. 
I started showing in a gallery there, got into the drawers of the nascent Barbara Gladstone Gallery here in New York, and she's now a god, a goddess of the galleries. At the time, she wasn't, but nevertheless. So, you know, I thought, oh, gee, I guess I'm going to be an artist. This is great. And then I got here, and slowly the demons started speaking to me, as they speak to you, as they speak to anybody, telling me I couldn't do what I said I was. And I began to listen and slowly stopped making art. It was very painful. Uh, being in New York was hard, of course, trying to make a living. I eventually became a local truck driver of art, mind you, not of steel. I am Jewish. And then that, long story short, I stopped making art entirely, and it hurt. It really hurt. I was eaten alive by envy. I could not walk down the streets of New York without looking at every apartment, every loft, and go, you motherfuckers, that should be mine. I mean, I was like nuts. I was like self-entitled, self-feeling sorry for myself at all times, and furious with the world, everybody, you know, the art world, everybody. And I kind of absented myself and became a long-distance truck driver for many years, actually. And in the trucks is where I was so lonely and so fucking depressed <laughs> that I thought, well, I love art. I've got to be in the art world. And I started thinking, well, maybe I could be an art critic. That must be easy, right? You wrote about this experience of um, giving up art in uh, New York Max a couple of years ago. This year? Wasn't that long ago. Last year. Last my year. life as a failed artist. And in reading back through that story and in hearing you tell it there, the thing that struck me both times was that you didn't really talk very much about what the art was that you were making. Mm -hmm. Like before that doubt ate you yeah. from inside, what, what did the flip side of that feeling look like? Like what, like what did it feel like when you were an artist and optimistic and believed in yourself? And what was it that you believed that you should do? Well, that's a great question because it makes me feel good again because the kind of the quietude, the kind of internal space of that, of standing in my case and, uh, listening to music and just being in the flow of making art all day, you know, in that sense of the smell of the materials, the sound of watching something form. I was on a 25-year project to illustrate Dante's Divine Comedy. I was going to make 100 works of art for each of the 100 cantos of Dante's Divine Comedy, and my thought was I would travel through hell with Dante, through purgatory, and finally, in the year 2000, I began the project January 1st, 1975, and I was to finish on the last day of 1999, Y2K. And I made it to Canto Three before the real demons in hell. I didn't know that I had invented a project where I would confront what was already there, of course. But it felt so great to be an artist. I loved every second except I hated it. I was tortured, too. Did that perception that this was not for you or your work didn't compare come from seeing the work of other people or did it come from inside you? I would say, frankly, it came from inside me because I was getting confirmation in my very small pond and the National Endowment and this interest in the so-called sales and I was reviewed in Art Forum magazine, which then as now is kind of the hip, hipster magazine. So from the outside, things look pretty good. From the inside, they weren't pretty good. <laughs> they were pretty bad, very bad. And I just thought, I don't know what I thought. I just didn't think it was real. And it was easier not to work, frankly, than to be brave, to man up or woman up or grow a pair of whatever. It was easier to this day, I think, for all people who make things. It's 
easier, if more torturous, not to do the goddamn thing than to do it. To this day, I wake up early, and I have to get to my desk to write almost immediately. I mean fast, before the demons get me. I've got to get writing. And then once I've written almost anything, I'll pretty much write all day. I don't leave my desk. I have no other life. I'm not part of the world except when I go to see shows. And, and I, my second self, it seems, online is quite gregarious. So my second self is having a ball, you know, a few times a day. But um, so I quit, and it came from the inside. The messages I believed were from the inside. And I'm, I always tell artists, you know, you've got to make an enemy of envy. You can't look around yourself and think everybody's got more money, better education, taller, smarter, knows their history, is married well. All of that may be true, but you got to get on with it or get out. The art world is an all-volunteer army. If you don't want to be here, there's the door. And I unfortunately walked out. And it was the right decision in the end. But it hurts to this day. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a little bit more info about our sponsor this week, Tape a Call. If you are a journalist and you want to do your best work, you should not be trying to scribble notes while you're doing your interviews. You need to eliminate the need to write everything down and instead offload that worry to tape a call. It's a recording app journalists rely on to record calls, save them, organize them, upload them to the cloud and send them to other people right in their app. You'll get unlimited high quality recordings that you can download and access from anywhere. I really recommend you do this. If you don't, you will lose episodes. It has happened to me. Uh, I recommend tape a call because it's the industry standard call recording app used by journalists from the New York Times, Business Insider, ABC World News, and many more, many journalists I know, and they all like it. So I encourage you to try it risk-free for seven days by going to tapeacall.com slash longform. That's tapeacall.com slash longform. Thank you, Tapeacall. Also bringing you the show this week, Squarespace. I tell people to use Squarespace all the time. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. I don't think it makes sense in this day and age to maintain your own site on your own server, unless you really know what you're doing. And if you really know what you're doing, you probably have better things to do with your time. Uh, if you've got an idea and you want to make it reality without jumping through a lot of hoops, Squarespace is the way to do it. They've got great templates, e-commerce functionality, looks great on phones. They've got 24 seven award-winning customer support, nothing to patch or upgrade ever. So you can build a site now and know it'll look great for years to come. Uh, they're empowering many, many millions of people from designers to lawyers, to artists, to gamers, to restaurants, to turn their idea into something real. If you wanna be one of them, go to squarespace.com slash long form for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your site, because you don't have to pay till you launch it, you can use code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash LONGFORM. Offer code LONGFORM. Thank you, Squarespace. Here I am back with Jerry Salts. It sounds like in that you wake up and go right for that and write all day that you did find something for which it wasn't easier to not do it. Like, it seems like you found the experience that you wanted from art in some way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's very perceptive. What I needed that I guess I wasn't getting from art is something a little bit more performative, frankly. Yeah where my wife, Roberta Smith, who's my favorite art critic, she's um, the co-chief art critic for the New York Times, has said that to write weekly, 
the way that she does, I do, and only a handful of people do, is to perform live on stage. And for me, I got to perform live every night. I am on the road, as it were. And in a sicko way, I'm like Bruce Springsteen. My concerts are like three hours long. I will not stop until, is there anybody alive out there? And if I haven't killed the entire audience, I'll keep going. And art didn't have that. That's a studio practice. It's a private thing. Without feedback in real time from a real audience to watch and feel the reaction, to be on the streets of New York and have people stop me and go, you really got that wrong, or you got it right, or artists contacting me. All of that, I realized, is what I needed and I didn't know I wanted. And it might explain my second self, my online self, which is so, so interactive. In my real life, my friends will tell you I haven't gone to a sit-down dinner in decades. I can't do it. I'm incapable. I'm not socially well-adjusted. You and I would be seated next to each other. You're massively successful. you got this great podcast. See, he can't take it. He's starting to demur. And we would start talking, and within three seconds I would say to you, so what shows have you seen? Meaning art shows. And you yeah. would go, none. And I would look forward and not really speak again for the rest of the dinner. I have no other interests. I'm so boring, and I'm not going to ruin the dinner with Trump, you know, and if you're not a Yankee or a Giants fan. And uh, so uh, I don't know where I've come from, but I, I, this is my whole life. The writing, the performing live is the real me now, even if it's no good. There's very few, like, uh, when I think of, like, my artistic interests, what are we calling them now? The fine arts? The visual arts? The just, gallery arts? Just call them arts. The arts. The arts. Art. Um, I know a lot more about music and yeah. movies sure. than I know about art because those were the things that I was interested in when I was a teenager. And as the internet made being a completist more available to someone who's listening to music, mm -hmm. who's interested in older movies, there was no parallel education in art that I received. I did, however, uh, acquire a certain number of United Airlines miles, which caused me to start uh, getting a Mags for Miles promotion, which caused me to subscribe to New York Magazine for free at some point shortly after graduating from college, which means that I've been reading your writing in New York Magazine for a period of years while not going to very many gallery shows. Right. So when I think of what's happening out there yeah. that you're experiencing, I am actually seeing it through your lens. My very impression of what's happening in art, I would say, is like 25% from your writing. It's like 25% mm -hmm. from your writing, 25% from like going to museums in Europe Good. when I'm traveling, Good. and maybe 50% from just weird things that I've crossed paths with in unpredictable ways in well, art. Art is intimidating right yeah. now. All the awful, painful, real content of money, money, money. Most people look at art and they see something disgusting. I, too, see that disgusting thing. I like that my voice could be one voice that people read and that I want it to be accessible, open, not intimidating. When you read me, I want you to be able to get from the top to the bottom, A, and B, I want you to be able to understand what I've said and not feel like I've said or done anything that you yourself could not kind of put together by looking. Again, I have no art history, no degrees. I am making this up as I go just like everyone is. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know how to do it. I think everyone has that in common. I think every great artist, frankly, is self-taught. And I'm for people going to school. I'm not here on a podcast saying, you kids, stay out of school. If you can go to a school that you don't accrue a gigantic debt, do it. I might be envious, but take it if you can get to one of those good schools. But that's what I want my writing to be. And then I want you 
to be motivated to maybe start going to the galleries. You go, well, he seems to go to these galleries. I'll try to go. And then not be afraid because the people behind the desks at galleries are exactly like you. They're poor. They're incredibly poor. They've graduated. They owe a fortune. They have two jobs. They're being paid nothing. And they love art the way you love what you love. There's no difference. And yet people walk in the galleries and that you wouldn't believe how cruel they are to the people that work in them. I love those people. My wife and I think of them as people we're trying to train. They're the next generation of gallerists. And I love gallerists. Galleries are where new art comes from. And that's an important part of the system. And that part of the system is really under attack. There's a, a certain kind of a writer who would say, even like within like sports, I follow sports. You're I was a Cubs the, fan. I, I grew I, up that way. Then I got sickness. out. You know, people would say, if you read like um, Bill Simmons, who's a sports podcaster, like half of the time he's talking about the NBA as a corporate entity and attendance and right. business, who's going to move who, where, who's going to buy what team. There's a tendency, and I think the art world is as much like this as anything, that you could probably spend all your time just writing about art as business, um, about the people who are getting screwed at the bottom of the galleries and the big art fairs and this and how the business is changing and all of the sort of underhanded ways that things really work, how the sausage is made. But I would think that if you wrote primarily about that, it would be hard to write about loving art in the same way that you just described those yeah. people as a, a vessel <laughs> yeah, for being able to have it in the world. So I'm, I'm wondering for you, like, how does all that stuff interact? Like, how do you, right. how do you know whether it's more important to write about what's on the walls or the lease on the building and the right. people working That's really there? a good question. First of all, I want people to understand, and I've written many times, that about 99.999% of artists don't make money. And the art world has become obsessed with the 0.01% that does make money. I, too, am obsessed with those people. When Jeff Koons, a famous American artist, has a show, I go batshit, like... Is it good? Is it bad? He's making $3 million off of this bauble. It's at Larry Gagosian. All of that becomes content for the work. And I think it's valid content. But I want people to always, if it's possible, to see that content and then stop seeing it and see the art. See that content, see the prices, see the white box that it's being delivered in and the like Death Star energy that might be coming from it. Accept all that, judge it as you will, and then put that aside for a second if you can or keep using it and then look at the art and see what do I think of this art? Why? What's it doing successfully? How is it new? How is it repetitious? How does it use materials? How does it use everything? And then when you walk out, you haven't just been an internal a-hole of like going, if I ever see another gallery this big and this rich, I'm going to shoot somebody, right? You're supposed to be thinking. That's part of it. Even the rich gallerists think that. They yep. all will tell you that about each other. It's getting tough, and let alone the middle and the bottom. In any event, art is doing just fine. You're not worried. I am not in the least worried. Art, I try to post like 10, 15 uh, unknown artists like a night on my idiot Instagram, which you should follow at Jerry Saltz. I think of it as uh, a kind of salon de refusals, where all this work is in play. You may not like all of it. I don't like all of it. But take a look at it. And there's a lot of optical information that's quite interesting that isn't always the same 55 artists written by the same 55 academics whose work you never understand, who write about art in such a way that it's sort of bulletproof. You don't even know what their opinion is 
which I can't stand. I love Art Form magazine. I can't say that I've ever understood much of what's in it, but it seems very important to me, not in a bad way. I mean this with no irony. But there are many art worlds. Art contains multitudes. Criticism contains multitudes. People do not have to be talking about the painting is dead, criticism is dead, the art world is dead, everything's dead, everybody acts like an undertaker. It's a pain. Stop saying that. A medium dies when everything it was ever invented to solve has been addressed. Painting will stop existing when that happens. It's an operating system that was developed in the caves a two-dimensional abstract way to represent the three-dimensional real world so you on the outside could know what I'm thinking about on the inside and it would last. It wouldn't just disappear as it did in the cave dances or the way I painted my skin or sang a song in the caves. This was an operating system unlike almost all the others. And it still, for whatever idiotic reason, seems to be viable. It is to me. So you have got to walk into a gallery mm -hmm. or a museum, wherever you're experiencing art, and have this gut reaction. I don't know if it is actually a gut reaction, but have a reaction then in some ways try to capture that reaction internally, get home to your desk, I don't know if it's the next morning, and write it up. And if I were to describe the defining part of your writing about art that I see as different, beyond the sort of like academic languagey stuff, mm -hmm. um, I think that idea of trusting your reaction as being really central. And I can imagine you brought up the idea of envy before, and I've certainly experienced envy in my life of, of artists and art, that that can poison your ability to have that pure reaction. And I would also imagine that doing it 300 times a year can poison your ability to have that reaction. It does in many critics, and you can, you can see it in their work. They hate this. I think that if envy will eat you alive, I think that cynicism will eat your work from the inside, and it will rot. And the only people I block online, I have two rules online. Everybody I've ever blocked always says, well, he blocked me because we disagreed. Uh-uh. No, I love disagreement. I live for disagreement. I disagree. I don't care. I have elephant skin. First of all, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You can never say anything worse to me about me or my work than I have said to myself thrice a day, 300 times a day. I only block cynics who will tell me, Jeff Koons, for example, he's not real. He's a fake. He's not an artist. He only does this for money. People don't know that. Everybody's pretty sincere. That's how I go in. Yeah. Larry Gagosian is fucking sincere. Yeah. I've met Jeff Koons. The guy's like a Teletubby howdy doody. He's totally sincere. You may not like what he makes. Great. Good for you. Yeah. Make a case. So I block cynics. And then the other people I block is you can call me a name online, but you may not call anyone else in the thread a name, because that's when the threads go insane. Yeah. I've, I learned that. So looking is the key. You've got to get quiet inside and listen to what you think. And yeah, you are right. It's subjective. Art is subjective. Everybody has an opinion. There are people that look at Rembrandt, and it's happened to me. When I go through Rembrandt galleries and I look at them for a while and I go, kind of brown, a little bit brown. I'm having a hard time seeing these. But I'd like to quote a sort of quote from Wallace Stevens, my second favorite American poet after Walt Whitman. Duh. It goes something like, 22 people crossing a bridge into a village are 22 people 
crossing 22 bridges into 22 different villages. He's basically saying that while we both do cross into one village, that's the reality, the material reality of our journey, your village, the one you entered, is very different than mine. And the bridge you crossed is totally different than mine. And my Rembrandt is different than yours. And what's really great about really great art is that your Hamlet and my Hamlet are different. And when it gets deeply great, every single time you see Hamlet, it's different. So your Hamlet never stays the same. That's what you're looking for. Tiny elements of a changing same, yada, yada. So you go around to the galleries and you keep in mind that 85% minimum of what you see is going to be crap. 85% that's, of... I feel like that's generous, actually. I do, too, but I'm not, not going to be... Is, that in itself is an optimistic take. Well, I'm going to be optimistic because yeah. if I see one inch of one work of art in a full day of yeah. looking, one inch, that makes me feel okay. Like, oh, wow, I'd never seen anybody use felt Yes. That way. And I think, well, that's great. But you have to keep in mind, let's use, you're going to say 95% of what you see is crap. I say 85. But my point is that it's a fairly consistent number where 85% of the art made in the Renaissance was crap. Yes. You just never see it again. It's gone. The music written at the time of Bach, it's gone. We kept what consensus said was good. So what I want you to do is go around and understand that the 15% of the stuff that you may like, that's good art for you. But my 15% may be really different. And that's where it gets interesting. That where it starts to overlap and converge and then go apart. And that's what I like to write about. I've talked to uh, war reporters about you know, okay, you're going to go into this zone. You're only going to be there for eight hours. Wow. Potentially you're capturing details for an entire feature article in just a portion of one day. Couldn't be the same for people yeah. writing a profile who only have a couple hours of access to a celebrity. So for you in capturing that initial experience, yeah. that rush, does your brain have a way of cataloging details? Do you start thinking of phrases that right. you're going to use to describe the art? Good question. Again, I think that it's a lot of different levels. I think this is interesting because, first of all, one thing I will do is draw a picture of whatever I'm looking at. Mm. It's a sketch that you would never in a million years recognize as what I'm looking at. I'm a terrible drawer. I couldn't draw then. I can't draw now. So this is kind of like a floor plan of the It's a show. floor plan. So what order does it come in? And, okay, you draw a picture of this sculpture, then that photograph, then this painting. You write little words on the checklist, little idiot words like purple or too big, very yeah. bumpy, shiny. I try to read the press release, but mostly they're gobbledygook, art speak. And so my secret is to go to the last four sentences, and usually down there, it'll kind of try to tell you what it is. All the rest is, this is about nature and culture and the commodified object of late capitalism and how the simulacra, and it goes on and on. Everybody yep. says the same thing. Can I ask you, because I, don't, I yeah. don't know how this works, who writes that? It's usually written in with the artist in conjunction with the gallery. Yeah. My recommendation for artists, here's what I want to say. Listen to me, artists and yeah. writers. Listen. Here's how to write a statement. Keep it simple, stupid. K-I-S-S. -S. Write how you talk. Write how you think. If your artist statement began... I grew up and I always was interested in magic. You've already got me a little bit. Yeah, I, I'd see that, show. Already, yeah. yeah. I want to hear more about this person. Yes. I want you to keep it simple and don't use words like nature and culture. Just write about what you think you're doing in the simplest way, and I promise you it will be 30 times more interesting than 30 
of the next uh, statement you read. And it's the beginning of learning to write, frankly, and not being intimidated by the process. It's very simple. Writing is easy. There is, you have to learn. There is no such thing as writing. There is only rewriting. My pieces moved through 30,000 drafts, 300,000. And this is, I'm a weekly critic, yeah. or sometimes a daily. And I have to work it out, work it out. It's completely done. It's bulletproof. You are a god. And then you notice the whole first two sentences are stupid. Right before you send it, you rewrite them in that last one second. And that's the beginning of your piece. Just like that. The sentence that you spent the most amount of time, the opener. Would that fly? Like, let's say I got a, a big solo show at the Gagosian Gallery out, yeah. of, out of left field. No big surprise. And I was like, hey, um, I find this kind of writing pretentious mm -hmm. and it's antithetical to my art. Yeah. Uh, I would like the catalog to say this was inspired by my childhood magic. They would say period. absolutely yes. Ah. You have to understand the galleries are not enemies. The galleries yeah. are facilitators who are looking for ways to make more artists more money while they make money themselves. Most of the gallerists that you see, even though you don't believe me now, they started from almost nothing. Yep. They're idiots like you. A lot of them wanted to be artists, and some of them are successful. Again, 1% of 1% is successful. And gallerists will say yes to artists in every case. Yes, now millions of artists are listening to this saying, oh no, this gallery said no to me. Well, then that's a bad gallery. That's a bad gallery. Good gallerists trust their artists to make mistakes, to fail. They have to trust that that failure, that there's something in there. How does your own experience running a gallery when you were mm -hmm. a young person affect me. You know, when you walk in in Bushwick and there's six people living in the back. That happens a lot. And, you know, mattresses have been moved to make a make room for the show, et cetera. How do you reflect back on, on your own experience as a young person being in a situation like that? I'm ashamed to say I've never reflected back. I love the question so much. It's like, am I thinking about what it was like? I guess I am at all times because a couple of things I think. One, any person who has a hot spot in the corporation like me, you better goddamn sign the artist book. Job one, walk into the gallery. Don't be uh, high and mighty enough not to sign the book. They want to know, have you been there? They're dancing naked in public. Artists, writers, creative people, they have a sick need, like you, like me, to dance naked in public. And they want to be seen. If you only dance naked in private, some people need, you know, if you only make your own food, that's good for some people. Some people like cooking meals and hearing back from others. So you sign the book. Next, I want younger critics, geezers like me, my wife, Roberta Smith, the great Peter Sheldahl at The New Yorker, weekly critics these are, and others, the older critics, you can't be aiming for us. We're too big in a way. The space we have to fill, this is on glossy paper. I want younger critics. Three generations have to start going to three generations of younger dealers. Now, you've got to go. You can't just go writing about how bad Larry is and Jeff Koons are and Damien Hurst is. That's low fucking hanging fruit. Like I say, you want to do one of those a year, go ahead. But you have to put yourself, make yourself radically vulnerable. That's my motto, radical vulnerability that you have to be able to criticize your own generations and not just write, damn it, positively. Everybody's in a way been coddled. Most artists graduate school never getting even a negative crit. And when you get out in the world, you're going to hear some stuff that's going to hurt your feelings. And I'm not seeing enough criticism out there of smaller galleries, newer artists, 
positive and negative. And I want to see that. It's also time, I'm afraid, the institutions are in trouble. We're in a reckoning right now. My generation built this art world. We built this city. And now it's rotting. It's big. It's beautiful. It's spectacular. And parts of it are dying. It's been overstaffed. It's overpaid. They're overworked. Museums have to change. Obviously, they have to have a, a, a thousand times more diversity. A thousand times. And that's going to start happening. And it is a zero-sum game. You better listen up, people. It's a zero-sum game. It means older, white, male, critic, getting a job means that somebody else isn't. That's what zero-sum is, which means from now on, maybe we need those critics aren't going to get the job. A white, male, middle-aged painter may not get the show. I'm sorry, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt for five years, it's going to hurt for ten years, until we get to the point where we can have a black woman painter as mediocre as a white male painter. When we reach that point, we have parity, and I'm happy. I want that. It's a zero-sum game, which means don't pay so much attention to the gigantic institutions. You have to start your own institutions. It's time. It's easy. If you build it, they will come. I promise you. First, it's 35 people. Then it's 350. If you're any good and you have energy, it's all about energy. Put your own self on the line. You've got to build it. You weren't poorer than I was. I want to tell you something while you're listening to this going, it's easy for him to say, I too am one paycheck away from being broke. I posted my total life savings in 2014 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter that was, I think, $4,000. Okay? So you're going to listen to this and go, oh, you got a lot of money. Okay. I'm a thousand years old and I have four thousand dollars. Okay, if I lose my job here and I have no contract at New York Magazine, if I lose my job here, I don't have health insurance. So what am I trying to say? Woman up, man up. You have to build this art world. You have to make it up yourself. It's your energy completely. Don't look to the geezers. The way that you described what's happened in museums, there's an idea that they can become more diverse or more modern, but that's in some ways modernizing the institution. And there's a, a more radical place that art could go. You're posting artists on your Instagram feed now. Like, Do you ever consider that the, the idea that the whole party will move on, that these institutions, the museums will just sees to be the kind of place an art critic goes. I don't see museums as ever being places that art critics wouldn't go to because all, for me, all art is contemporary art. That means when I look at a Renaissance painting, a cave painting, an Indian mandala, all of it's in the present for me. It's the eternal present, and then when I'm dead, it's over. So while I do think we must go, not must, but it, I'd I go to the Met with my wife 40 times a year, and I still only pay like a quarter. You need to sneak in, people. You just work it out. When I was a kid, I never paid for anything. Now, stop paying for things. I love going to see old art. It, it speaks to me. I just walk around a museum waiting for something to talk to me. If nothing talks to me, I go to the cafeteria. In the meantime, I want generations of younger critics going to the other institutions after they go to the Met and the Whitney and the Guggenheim and the Brooklyn Museum, etc. After that, go to other institutions, artist-run spaces, idiot places in Bushwick that are mostly bad, but maybe there's something good. Maybe there's something, and you better tell it. 
If you don't, and we've lost a few generations, I think, to academia, quite frankly. I say this as a jealous person who didn't go and wishes that he did, and I do miss out on a certain level of the discourse because of it. However, I've seen too many critics not putting out opinion, or when they do, it's buried into the second to the last sentence where they'll go, these sculptures were problematized. And you go, wait, is that bad? Is that good? What do you mean it's problematized? I don't understand. Well, it's a language I don't understand. It's my problem. But we need more critics to write without jargon, with opinion, about work from these generations. Because people are dying on the vine out there. It's ridiculous that a 67-year-old critic, it's ridiculous that I'm the one posting all these pictures on Instagram that people are hating and liking and liking and hating. I want to talk about the writing because it sounds simple when you talk about it, but I find personally that writing about art, it's one of the hardest things for me to write about, even casually, when someone will say, hey, what did you think of this? The giving of an opinion is a very linguistically difficult act, I think. And so when mm -hmm. you started, right. what, what year did you publish your first um I think about, art? I'm born in 51. I started publishing, I think, in 91. So that's 51, 61, 71, 81. Not four, I was 40 when I started writing. Okay. It's 91. Right. New York City. Right. You're sitting down to write your very first few pieces. How does one describe what is on the wall of the show? You, you describe the checklist, the uh, right. purple, shiny, bubbly. You uh, begin, I began in the wrong way, but it's the way everybody begins, by trying to sound smart. Sure. The commodified object of the natural uh, material used in this, uh, you know, culturated blotty blah. And I had no idea what I was writing about, but I knew what the language sounded like, and that's how I began. And then deadlines. Deadlines are sent to us from hell via heaven. What's so interesting about a deadline is when they start coming faster, you can't dissemble, you can't lie, you can't hide what your real thoughts are. And that's when it happened to me, by fucking accident. I started putting off the writing. The deadline was coming, and I pride myself on never having missed a deadline. It's a dumb rule, but it's the one I've kept. I've decided, I've listened to too many editors that are too furious at too many writers, and I just don't want to be that guy. That's me. I'm a lot of assholes, but I'm not that one. Deadline is coming, and it's time to put out what you think, or shut up, get out. And how do you begin? You know that you're going to mention the artist's name way up there. So you got at least two words of a sentence. And then in my mind, I want to get two words of description. So the big rectangular Aaron, what's your last name? Lammer. Has a presence that seems generic, <laughs> <laughs> generic, but yeah. ambitious. Yeah. In that it want you know, and then start right there. Put out, my feeling is that in the first two or three sentences, you should have a sense of some of the things I'm about to do. And when I stop doing them, you should stop reading me, and I have failed. Anybody that ever stops me on the street and goes, wow, I started reading your review, and it was really great, and I'm going to read it later, when they walk away, I think, I failed. Because you don't pick up reviews and read them second time. It's one time. I've got to get you by the collar and keep you there for a good six minutes. And that is not easy. Do your ideas change a lot while you're writing? Totally. I never know what I think before I think it. Yeah. I never know what I'm going to say before I say it. I'm always shocked. All of a sudden, I think I like this guy. I love his podcast. I see his work. I think I like it. I get home, I find it's derivative and generic. What do I do? Well, it's very easy. The deadline tells you what to do. I have no time to quit. 
I don't have health insurance, so I've got to now write the truth, which is Aaron's work is generic and derivative for the following 900 words. Why? I have to make my case. You can't just say Titanic is a bad movie <laughs> or a good movie. That's fun. That's what you do after the movie. Mm -mm -mm. That's not what a review is. You need to describe and judge. Describe and judge. That's what reviewing is. And it should be a pleasure to read, for God's sake. It may be a little helpful for the reader to be a little less afraid, to hate the writer more, to like the artist less, whatever. Is there a strong distinction between writing about a piece of art that was created this year versus a piece of art that's in a retrospective versus a piece of art that perhaps you've even written about previously 20 years ago. Like there's the artistic eternal present, but yeah. the stories are of different half lives. Yeah. I often will confront work that I thought I liked that then I don't or yeah. that I thought I didn't. And then I do. And I try to deliver that up as well. What happens if you're dead? Will I be negative? Yes, I will. If I don't like Turner, which I don't that much, I want to write about that I find it a little bit um, bombastic and overly obvious that he's painting fuzzy, goldy clouds of um, soot and clay, yada, yada, and that I might prefer Constable for the following reason. I think it's all the same. It's all in play. It's all opinion. You're going to say to me, but Jerry, then, it's all opinion. And my answer is, yeah, so what's your opinion? Have you ever seen a cave painting? What's your opinion of it? Have you ever been? A lot of art was not meant to be even be seen by human eyes. Think of, like, inside sarcophagi in Egypt. That's only meant to be seen in the afterlife. Some art is meant to heal. Other art was meant only to sort of fly over your army, to show you that your army was stronger than the other. Some art is meant to cast spells. Fetishes are meant to get you pregnant or keep you from being pregnant. Art has a lot of uses. It has many uses. There's the famous story, I can't remember who told it, of the judge at The Hague who was listening to the Bosnian war trials who would go see Vermeer at every lunch. And they said, why do you see Vermeer? Because they're beautiful. And he went, well, no, of course not. I see Vermeer because he heals pain, you know. So it's only very recently that we've only had one use for art, which was to put at 53 inches about in the center of a white room and hang it there and buy it. So I'm interested in opening up the discourse and understanding. I'm looking for voice, frankly, in every case, in the writer, in the artist, in the person. What's your voice, even if I don't like it? If I don't like your voice, but it's individual, I love you. What was the biggest moment for you in the development of your own voice? When did you start feeling like, oh, I can read this and I can hear my true soul speaking, not that trying to be smart that you described? A few describe? things. I think one was what I was trying to say about deadlines, that they force you to hear yourself. The second was, how would that sound, right? How would it sound? Well, when I tried to sound like academia and art form and all those good things, I didn't like the sound of my own voice and didn't feel it was mine. But then when I read my wife, Roberta Smith, I would read Pauline Kale, I would read people like an art critic named Sanford Schwartz, Peter Sheldahl, Joan Akicella, who writes some of the best first sentences I've ever read. I don't know what her secret is. I would hear what juice sounded like, what it felt like, and I thought, all I have to do is write how I talk and hope that I can then create a character that speaks in a certain way, because I don't talk how I write. 
In fact, I'm a not very good conversationalist at all. I'm long-winded, you can tell. Uh, I don't know. I find a similarity between how you talk and write. Well, you have a, you're, you're exuberant yes. in both forms. Yeah, I'm desperate, exuberant, hopeful, panicked, uh, needy. Exuberance is not, I would say, the default tone of art writing. In fact, no. <laughs> somewhere along, somewhere around the opposite. Well, I, think I don't is... want to be a cheerleader. Exuberance, yes. Cheerleader, there's too many of those. Every critique is a good critique. All art is good art. Get out of here. Get out of here. What has it been like being in an ongoing marriage with someone who does the same thing as you do? Um, do you discuss what you're working on in the house? Well... I would wish what I have on anyone. I love being married to somebody that does what I do. We talk about criticism 24-7, and I love it. I talk very little movies. We have opera as a hobby. That's about all we do. That's it. We are so boring. Like I say, I haven't gone out to dinner in decades. No interest in it. To me, I want to see the shows. We see 25 to 35 shows a week. There's art to be seen. It's our job to see what's there, good, the bad, the very bad. Do we go to galleries alone or together? On Saturdays, we begin together and then usually find our ways crisscrossing, and then by the end of Saturday, we'll bump into each other at a last gallery. I love being married to somebody that speaks my language, that knows the demons I face, and I know hers. Uh, to know what it means to live under a deadline, many artists disagree with me, and they go, I could never live with another artist. And I say, whatever gets you through the night, whatever gets you through the night, and if you want money, marry a lawyer. Whatever, I'm a sociopath when it comes to making your work. I really am. I don't care about you, the person. I only care about your good or bad art. That is all I care about. And whatever it takes to get your work made, I do not care. If you have to take drugs to do it, that's what you have to do. If you're married to a lawyer and that's how you fund yourself, good. Good for you. I don't care. I'm not going to judge anybody. Because I know how I've been judged. I've been counted out. I am out. I've never written for art form. I've never been asked to write for those big, big catalogs. I'm not on the important symposia, you know? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. I'm really lucky to be able to do what I do. And to be absolutely honest, I think about how lucky I am 80% of the time. I walk around going, I do not believe I'm not a truck driver anymore. I don't believe it, how bad, how hard that was. And I always, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. One last thing I want to say about the luck is when I was first asked to come here to New York Magazine, your first question, I said, oh, God, no. Why would I want to write for New York Magazine. I'm at the Village Voice, which is super hip and underground and cool and hot. I was paid $400 a week, which to me is a fortune to this day. It's a lot of money, but I don't know. Everybody's different now. And uh, I told some friends and they went, don't you understand? New York Magazine is getting really great under Adam Moss and the Voice will probably close. And I said, you're kidding, really? And I said, I had no idea. And I called up New York Magazine and I said, I've got to have this job. And Adam Moss took me to lunch uptown. It was one of the first and last lunches I've ever done at a ritzy titsy restaurant. And we talked for about three hours and the job never came up. And at the very end, when we were leaving, I went, <clears throat> what about the job? And he said, oh, what about it? And I said, well, I would really like it. And he went, okay, like that. And he said, do you have any ideas about it? And I said, some silly thing or two. And he went, sure, we'll talk about that. And that was it. And my life has never been the same because I want to write for a big audience. 
I do. I'm not interested in only the specialist. I'm interested in anybody that might stumble across my idiotic work, begin it, and maybe keep going and see that art, it's about as special as sports. Art is no more or less important in this universe to me than philosophy or religion, economics, politics, cooking. It's all part of the big ball of wax, and that's what I want people to hear. It isn't this scary, shit, hard thing. It's easy. Final question. You've been doing this. How many, how many reviews do you think you've written? I have no did idea. You, were you, did you stop counting at a specific number? When Google first came out, yeah. <laughs> I would Google myself, yeah. and I stopped that. Definitely, over, definitely over a thousand. Now. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is there any summary to this project for you? Do you have any overriding ambition to sum it all up or to say something definitive about mm. a certain streak or a certain artist? Just that art contains multitudes, really. And that I found a way to speak yeah. through this other object. Some people do it through dancing, others through singing. And somehow just looking at art is a way to do it too. Thank you, uh, Jerry Saltz. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Longform. Aaron Lammer is uh, traipsing around the Spanish countryside. That is a true thing that he is doing right now. Uh, so he's not here to record these credits. I'm Max Linsky. Our other co-host is Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, And our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our sponsors this week, the fine people at MailChimp, who have made this show possible for years, Tape Call, Squarespace, and Pit Writers, the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks to them for their support. And thanks to Jerry Saltz for that interview. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.